0: Welcome to the Combat Morale Podcast, with me, Dr Tom Thorpe. I'm the editor, producer and host for the programme. The podcast explores why combatants in armed conflict fight and endure, (laughs) and in some situations, other combatants desert, mutiny or refuse to fight. For more information, go to the website at combatmorale.com. This is episode four, season one, and today I speak to historian and author, Dr Jeff Rutherford. Jeff has written a number of books on the German soldier during the Second World War. In particular he's focused on the Wehrmacht and SS soldier serving on the Eastern Front. I spoke to him about what motivated these individuals to fight and endure during that conflict and he spoke to me from his office in America. Jeff, welcome to the Combat Morale Podcast. Could you start by introducing yourself and how you became interested in the Wehrmacht, war crimes and motivation?
1: Well, uh, my name is Jeff Rutherford and I earned my PhD at the University of Texas in 2007, um, where I did a dissertation on three German infantry units and their combat and occupation practices in the Leningrad region. Um, I became interested in, in the German army and its uh, the question of why it fought, how it fought, um, at a re- fairly young age, my father brought home the World at War video, um, and I remember watching that and thinking, this is this is blowing my mind, What's, why are German soldiers in the snow thousands of miles from home in, in the Soviet Union? And I, I got interested in it at a young age, and then when I went to undergrad, and my first professor who did German history was George Stein, who wrote the history of the Waffen-SS until Bernd Wegner's book um, superseded it some twenty-five years later. And he first day I was there, I was talking with him, he gave me a copy of Omar Bartov's book, Hitler's Army. And he said, You you need to take a look at this. So it was it was that first, first year of, of undergrad reading Bartov and thinking about, all right, this this changes the way that we think about the German army, certainly sure. from my perspective, but it, it obviously changed the way that the historic, historical profession looked at the German
0: Before we get into the detail, could you give us a broad overview of the German army on the Eastern Front during the Second World War? Sure. Um, I think in our, our popular
1: conception, the German army is is one that is associated with Blitzkrieg, that we have these tank divisions that are racing far ahead and tearing huge holes in Soviet lines and encircling hundreds of thousands of, of Soviet soldiers. And this is all true, at least for 1941 and part of 1942. But I think the important thing to keep in mind is that the German army is basically an infantry army, that we have a, an armored spearhead of give or take 25 panzer divisions. Um, we have another handful of motorized infantry divisions, which later become panzer grenadier divisions. But for the most part, the overwhelming majority of the army It's the same type of army that fought in the First World War. It's the same type of army that fought in Franco-Prussian War. It's a foot-marching infantry army dependent on horse-drawn support. So I think that's important. Think about what the German army is in the Eastern theatre. It is not a mechanised
0: juggernaut. And what what were the environmental and combat conditions of the average, I use that term uh, broadly, average German soldier had to cope with when fighting the Soviets on the Eastern Front?
1: So many of the problems that the Germans faced on the Eastern Front such as climate, um, such as, as uh, supply, um, such as disease. Many of these were ones that the Germans themselves were responsible for in one way or another, right? The Soviets have to face the same cold weather. Um, the Soviets have have to worry about disease as well. But what we see is that the way that the, the German army plans the operation in 1941, that they pay very little attention to the logistic um, underpinnings of the campaign. So this means that when we do get to winter, that there are numerous, if not the majority of the German army, which is without winter gear. And we see, you know, rising frostbite numbers across the front for the army in the end of 41, into 42. Um, We see that, you know, that because of these supply difficulties, partly due to the fact that we have a lot of horse-drawn carriages that have to bring stuff to the front, partly because the um, trucks that the German army has available are starting to break down um, as we go over a a road net that is very different from what they had used in, in Western Europe, that the German soldiers at the front find themselves short of, of material. Um, I've seen documents where divisions say, you know, we're gonna have to decide, is it gonna be food? Is it gonna be ammunition, right? And winter clothing kind of gets its left to the side. So this is a real problem for the Germans in the first winter. Now by the winter of 42, 43, um, they don't have these these types of problems, with the exception, obviously, of um, German units that are encircled in Stalingrad. Right, this is at the a long supply line as well. And once the Soviets encircle the German Sixth Army, uh, this makes supply difficult, and those guys um, suffer the same fate that German soldiers. The one the one thing that that you see um, across the board with documents as well as letters is German soldiers talking about the quote unquote primitive nature of the Soviet, that it doesn't have the luxuries or even what German soldiers would think would be necessities for human life. Um, of course, this is from their their perspective, right? And it's it's one that's colored by Nazi propaganda that has painted the Soviet Union as this backward um, type of, of place. But nonetheless, um, you, you read that you know German soldiers early in the, the campaign are you know disgusted that Soviet civilians are living with their animals in the same room. And then by winter 41, 42, well, they're happy to be in that same room and we'll say the people, if, if need be, just to keep warm. So there are a lot of um, climatic issues that the Germans have to deal with. But again, right, the Soviets have to deal with these same issues. And, they seem to do okay with.
0: Um, how effectively did the German army fight Eastern Front? I know it's a, a controversial subject and there are many different ways of measuring effectiveness and performance, but were there any sort of breakdowns in morale during the war in terms of mutinies or widespread widespread combat refusal?
1: So it seems that for the most part, the German army fights um, relatively effectively on the Eastern, right? I mean, at the the basic level, we can look at the number of casualties that the Germans inflict versus those that are inflicted upon them by the Red Army. And it's clear that the Germans come out um, better there. Um, In terms of, of widespread desertion, we don't see a lot of that. Um, on the Eastern Front, that for the most part, German units um, fight to the end. In fact, we don't have a lot of Germans that are taken prisoner until we get to 1944 with Operation Bagration. And there's some obviously in late 1943 on the southern section of the front as well. But for the most part, German units do tend to um, fight and men Try much harder to escape captivity in the Soviet Union than they do say in the Western Front in one thousand nine hundred and forty four into
0: forty five so turning to the issue of motivation, what sustained the German uh, soldier in combat now, uh, now broadly, there are three factors now I think this is, is somewhat simplistic, but for the sake of this podcast, um, I will outla- outline the three which are sort of primary group. M- primary group cohesion in terms of the band of brothers idea that you fight for your mates, ideology such as Nazi uh, allegiance to the Nazi party or Hitler, and finally coercion that unpleasant things would happen to you or your family if you deserted. Could we take each of these uh, in turn and look at, look at them and how they functioned uh, for German soldiers on the front? Starting with primary group cohesion, from your research, do you think the role of interpersonal social relationships were important in sustaining German formations in combat and endurance? During the war,
1: I think that this idea of, of primary group um, cohesion might be the most important. With a caveat, um, it seems that when this idea of a primary group uh, cohesion was first talked about after the Second World War, right? Schils and Janowitz were, were discussing this. That when they were talking with German soldiers, they took the idea of primary group cohesion from the German word um, uh, comradeship. Right? They just did this direct translation. And as um, subsequent research into this term has demonstrated, that this idea of primary group cohesion might not be entirely applicable to the German army as it was in other groups. Certainly Certainly, German soldiers fight for the guys around them, right? But there's this larger idea of comradeship, which extends beyond the small group. And includes the, you know, the, let's say from the platoon level up to the regiment, or to the battalion level, to the regimental level, to division level, even to the country as a whole. So that there's this this idea that the German soldiers are not only fighting for the guys around them, but they're also fighting for the country as a whole, broadly defined. Right? This idea of camaraderie, and that the the um, the army really inculcates this during the end of the First World War during the interwar period, this idea of, of comradeship is one that you see as a red thread through all throughout um, German writings about the First World War, both ones that we see as pro-war and anti-war, but this idea of, of comradeship still holds true. So I think that this might be the most important idea, that a German soldier didn't want to be seen as the outsider to his group of comrades. And as I said, right, this this idea can be expanded all the way up to the, the level of the country as a whole, and that this is what, what kept German soldiers in the fray um, for a long time, this idea that that we are a separate, we're a separate entity in a sense, that we're at the front, we are our own society, yet we are linked to this larger society, and that we all have to do our duty, um, both to our country, to our families at home, but also to this more amorphous idea of the Volksgemeinschaft right which then ties into this idea of Nazi ideology I guess we could say that we can't look at any of these three things separate right that they all are, are tied together in one way or another and that this helps explain why why German soldiers fought
0: what about the idea of um, ideology in ter- t- terms of sort of loyalty to the party and things like that was that an important thing I mean certainly uh, Bartov suggests that um, do you think that was important for many soldiers
1: so I don't, I'm not sure if it's loyalty to, to the party or more of a, a loyalty to the, the greater ideas, um, this kind of utopian mission that, that Hitler is suggesting, right? That, that Germany find its rightful place, right, rightful place in the world, um, but that this rightful place now includes this racial empire to the east, and I. I from my reading of it and looking at, you know, some of the sources, you see that German soldiers are bombarded with ideological material, especially at the very beginning of the camp, right? The lead up to it and then the opening days. And then we see it again, come back late 43 into 44. Um, this idea of of painting the Soviets as the other, right? This this Slavic um, which is led by the, by Jews, right, this, this whole Nazi ideological construct of the Jewish Bolshevik, and that this does, this this idea of the other, I think, is important when we think about this idea of the comrade, right, that the other exists outside of this um, comradeship, and that this is vital for the Germans to paint themselves as, as their own um, individual community struggling against another. So. Do I think that, that German soldiers um, go into the Soviet Union or become transformed into racial warriors um, during the course of the war? I don't think that they do. However, I do think that that Nazism and the, the ideas of of Hitler, which are then kind of, you know, kind of cascade down the hierarchy, both into the SS and police units, which the German army works with closely at times in the East. Um, as well as within the German high command, we see that it creates this atmosphere in which almost anything is allowed. Um, So for the German army, the idea that we have to do whatever we have to do to win the war, um, well, Nazi ideology has made it that there really are no boundaries, that whatever, the army believes is necessary to, to triumph as a lab. So I think this is where we see the importance of ideology, is that it, it creates an atmosphere in which there are no boundaries, there are no limits, there are no legal repercussions, and the army is just fighting a, an unbridled war um, of, of, of annihilation
0: right, as it moves forward. And, and certainly some of the um, stuff I've read certainly suggests that the SS or the sort of more political units were much more ideologically committed. Was this, was this the case, given that the SS was such a diverse unit, you know, for instance, raising even raising a Muslim uh, formation in 1943?
1: Right. This, I mean, think that's a great point, that the Waffen-SS is a very diverse
0: organization.
1: Um, certainly we have five or six, what we could say, truly elite divisions Um, And then the officers from these divisions kind of work their way into newly raised German uh, German Baffen SS divisions. And I think the evidence is clear that these divisions are much more ideologically charged, that their officers have all gone through much more intense ideological indoctrination, and that they wage war much more in line with what Hitler is looking, or at least they wage war much more intentionally with what Hitler is looking for. I'm not trying to leave the German army out. Of this. They say clearly wage the war that Hitler wants to, though I don't think they always do. But you're right that we have a, a, a lot of waffen SS divisions that are raised um, at the the end of the war, which clearly do not have the same ideological import. Right? They're not they're not fighting that same war that say the um, Totenkopf or Das Reich or Leibstandarte. So I think we do have to be careful there. But I I do think it's clear that those elite German Waffen-SS divisions do fight a a much more ideological
0: war than their their army counterparts. And the final factor to consider is that of a coercion. What do you think what role did that play in actually keeping men at the front and fighting?
1: I think coercion is important. Um, and I think it's especially important um, when we think about the, the larger world that the soldiers inhabited. Right. If we get back to this idea of comradeship. Right. You don't want to be the outsider. You want to be part of the group um, so that this this um, kind of argues against desertion. I think the other thing we can talk about with, with desertion is where they're going to desert to right, that the fear of, of Soviet captivity is, is far, far greater than anything we see in the West. So this, this I think this ties into that idea of coercion, right, that you're fearful of both sides, so you kind of stay where you are. Now, it's clear that the, the German army utilizes the death penalty to a far greater extent than it did during the First World. Somewhere in the neighborhood of 20,000 German soldiers are, are executed by the German army um, for various offenses. So it is used as a deterrent um, but the fact that 20,000 are executed also suggests that maybe it's not as, as useful in deterring this type of behavior as, as one would think. right? They, that's a lot of examples that have to be set here. So is, is this idea of military justice and the, the fear of, of court-martial part of it? Yes, I think it is. I think there's also the fear that if you're court-martialed, you lose your rank, your position in the Army, your family loses the benefits that go with this. So that's a, a, a kind of a social coercion that, that's plays, that plays a role here as well. I would rank the, you know, if we're, if we're going to rank the importance of what keeps the German army in the field, I would have this uh, a distant third behind me, the previous two. Um, I think the fear of it is always there, um, but that it's not something that, that German soldiers think about
0: all the time. I think you're right. I mean, certainly from my reading of, you know, coercion, oh, sorry, my reading of cohesion, it's very much a social norm, uh, as well as a martial ideal, as well as a, a political, um, I you know, concept. And all these things seem to merge very much together, along with the, you know, the practical ways that we see sort of, we, you know, the idea of Co- cohesion in Western and British armies is very much about the interpersonal relationships rather than the, the, the secondary nature or the secondary the abstract nature of those ideas. and it's very much more fused into this sort of slightly more amorphous and slightly fuzzier idea and it's sometimes yeah. very difficult to actually put your finger on what cohesion means or what comradeship means. Mm-hmm. And my final question um, is what role did German army policy um, play in shaping combat motivation and endurance?
1: So the Army, at least my, my examination of, uh, I focus on the divisional level, and my, my examination of divisional level documents shows that the Army is very concerned with this idea, um, and we can see this in various ways. I think one way we can see it is through its replacement policy and how these divisions are raised, right? That unlike, say, the American Army, which is just kind of thrown together with soldiers from all across the United States, the German army is raised territorially. So we have groups of men that share similar cultural baggage, similar political ideas. They come from the same time and place, right? And that this really builds cohesion. And it's very noticeable when you're looking through divisional division documents and you see a, a, a commander complains, you know, an East Prussian division says, hey, we just got 800 Saxons, right? We don't need them, right? We, we want to maintain our, our homogeneity here. And I think this is, this is a, a very important thing that, that the German army does. And I think it really helps the idea of, of comradeship, right? That you have similar guys with similar beliefs that come together. So I think the army is very intentional about that. And this Bartov, for example, argued that the system breaks down in 41 and 42 with the massive casualties of Barbarossa in the winter crisis. And it does appear to break down for a, for several months, But by April, May 1942, it picks back up and that the army is able to maintain this this kind of cultural cohesion within units all the way up until late 44, when everything just kind of shatters. Um, So I think that's important. I think the army also um, works very hard to train its leaders to care about this stuff, that the German officer is seen in many ways as a paternalistic figure for his men and when you look at training documents, this is something that, that divisions talk about, right? In 1942, 1943, 44, men who are replacements who are arriving at the front are not well-trained, right? They go through a very abbreviated um, period of, of basic training. So this training has to take place at the front. So divisions, corps, um, they set up training exercises, you know, two weeks here, three weeks here, a month here, when it's quiet, right? Send the guys back behind the lines. And part of the thing that they talk about with the officers is this idea of taking care of your men and ensuring that they are all in this together. So I think, again, the army is intentional about creating this, this type of camaraderie. And then I think the last thing we can say um, about this, this idea of cohesion is that the German army is involved in numerous war crimes, numerous atrocities during the, the entirety of the war in the East and that this also in a way binds people together right that you know what you have done you are in it you 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 are have either watched it be done or you have participated in it being done and actually having to participate is something that helps bind these guys closer right you're not the outsider looking in but you're part of the group that has stolen some food from Soviet civilians or burned down a village in retaliation for an alleged partisan attack so that these types of behaviors right and the army encourages these types of actions on the part of the troops, um, both in terms of winning the war or what it perceives is going to win the war, but also as a means of binding the men closer together. So I think that the army understands the importance of cohesion and institutes numerous measures designed to ensure that the army maintains this, this
0: cohesion at the local. Yes, I think you're right. I think a lot of people underestimate how regional Germany is and how diverse its communities are and how politically independent they see themselves even today, you know, north, south, east, west, Austrians yeah. and it's a highly complex, we think of Germany as some sort of monolithic entity and it's a highly regionalized um, country with traditions of self-governance and you know they've only been unified for less than 150 years so you know, I think that is actually critical. And my final question is where can people learn more about your research?
1: Well you um, read my books. Um, I published my, my dissertation was published by Cambridge as uh, combat genocide on the eastern front the German infantry's war in 1941 and 1944 and I wrote a book with um, Adrian Vetstein. Um, who teaches in, at the Swiss Military Academy. It's a kind of a primary source reader where we take uh, numerous documents generated by the German army at all levels, translate them and put them into the context of operations, co- uh, occupation, leadership, training, weapons, um, that type of
0: thing. Jeff, thank you very much for your time.
1: I appreciate it. Thank you.